Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. We're back with another edition of Tax Alpha Solutions with Matt Chancy. Today, I have uh, an estate and probate attorney, Everett Sussman. And, you know, uh, in the world with everything moving so fast today, I would say that Everett is a little old school. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a good thing. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Everett Sussman. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have you today. So look, I teased it a little bit in the beginning. So tell them a little bit why about your old school, right? So I think it speaks to old school values. And I think we miss that in today's society. Everything moves too fast. So talk about that. Well, it's a very good question. I've been doing this on my own now for about 30 years. And I don't mind the term old school. I actually embrace it. Uh, Old, not so much, although my Son has told me the only reason I understand Latin is because it was my first language. (laughs) What I like to do is I sit and listen with my clients, which sounds very basic and very obvious, but you might be surprised how often that doesn't happen. How often an attorney who might be expert in real estate law or personal injury law really doesn't have much of a background in estate planning or in probate administration, but tries to do it anyway using their paralegal software and nightmares get started that way. So I like to just listen to what my clients are saying and often to what they're not saying, their concerns, their worries. I like to tell people that I help people sleep at night. Those things that wake them up at two in the morning and think, if something happened to me, is my wife still going to be able to hold on to the house? Is my mother going to be able to stay in her home with caregivers? Are my kids going to be able to have the money they need for college, for a first home? These sorts of things. This is what I do. There you go. Well, you bring up an interesting point. You know, I think the world today, um, obviously has gotten faster, right? Everything seems to happen faster, quicker, sooner, whatever. Um, There's maybe this fear of missing out. And I think that the, um, to the art of listening, you know, as, as kind of it's pitch and deliver, right? It's not, you know, ask questions to figure out what we need to pitch or deliver. If we need to do nothing sometimes, sometimes people just need to get it out, right? So how have you, you know, the, the listening skill is extremely important. Where'd that come from? Who taught you that, right? I was taught that, honestly, by my father, who was an attorney. He worked in Manhattan for quite a number of years. And when I was a child, he would tell me, look, if you do something good for somebody, they will remember and tell 10 people. If you do something bad, they will tell 100 and they will never forget. My reputation is built on that. I don't advertise. As I've said, I'll never, you'll never see my face on the side of a bus unless I didn't look both ways when I crossed the street. So I highly value the reputation I have to be able to 
slow down to listen, to figure out what's going on, because that's the only way that my client is going to be satisfied and be able to sleep at night. Sure. Sure. I would agree. So what are the, some of the common um, apprehensions or fears that the average client has that they, they tend to engage you? Because people always think that their circumstances are so unique and so different, and they are, but that's typically in the nuance, right? But from, a, from an overarching standpoint, right, many of their concerns are the same, right? My children, my spouse, and, and some other concerns. So, what are some of, so when people are coming to you, what are some of the primary reasons that people say, you know what, I need to reach out for an attorney in this particular scenario? What's, what's the causation? What causes them to finally make that move? Fear. Simply put, fear. Everybody is thinking, oh, well, I'm an adult. Probably we need to get our will done. We need to, we, we did it when the kids were young. Well, now the grandkids are in college. We probably should take a look. They know they need to do it. They just don't get around to it. And that is extraordinarily common. What gets them to actually pick up the phone and call me or send me the email is something has happened around them, either a bad medical diagnosis, a friend passes away far too young, something has made them think, okay, I need to do something right away. And then they call me. I've had people who call me and say, you know, we've been meaning to get around to this for six years. We're going on safari this weekend. Can you have something done by Friday? (laughs) So everybody is different. As you pointed out, everybody has a different situation. One of the things I love about what I do is in 30 years, I've never had the same week twice. But there are a lot of common factors. Usually it's when I get the question, what do I need to have in order to start estate planning? My answer is someone to protect, not something. It's not about the money. Money is just a tool to accomplish certain ends. Money is not the end in itself. What they're really worried about is protecting their loved ones, whoever that may be. And it can be children, spouse, parents, their alma mater, their church, a charity, whatever. Some people, it's a very simple scenario. They just need something put in place just in case. Some people have a very complicated scenario. And quite a number of people think they have a simple scenario, but it's actually a complicated one. Understood. Agreed. You know, I think that's a decent segue. Can you give us a little glimpse into somebody that thought they had a simple scenario and turned into be more complex than what they thought? Because there was, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, it's kind of like the iceberg principle. You can see what's above the water, but the trouble might lie below. Right. And and you're just unaware because it's not your area of expertise. So I think an example here would be great if you've got something you could share. Uh, Surely. I had a couple of years ago, just pre-COVID, had somebody call me up and say, hey, my father passed away recently. We want to do his probate. It should be pretty simple. He didn't have a lot of weird things all over the world or anything like that, but we know he had real estate in his his name. He had some investments. We want to take care of it. We want it done right. I said, no problem. We start getting into the investigation, find out what's going on, and I see the deed to his house is in joint names. And I say, now is your mother still alive? And they said, oh no, she passed away about 13 years ago. I said, 
And who handled the probate for her estate? Oh, no, everything was joint names. We never filed anything. Well, that can be a real problem because real estate deeds have to go through probate, even if it's very simply done. So what these people didn't realize and thinking it was simple is we have to go back in time 13 years, open probate based on the laws back then for mom, have her situation taken care of quickly, and then we can do dad's situation. But when the kids started this, they had no idea that there was a problem. Interesting. Yeah, that makes it that makes a big difference. And clearly planning for something 13 years in the past or going back is not an ideal situation. Right. No, especially with the laws, tax laws and probate laws that change what might have been available 13 years earlier may not be available now. And if the attorney you talk to has been practicing for five years, they won't know what they're doing. And that can be dangerous. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So it's an event driven opportunity where people are calling you and they're doing it because they want to protect someone. There's a person, right? Not things, good takeaways, right? So there's somebody in your life that you care about. Um, Makes a lot of sense. So, you know, what are, if you had not yet, let's assume that we're talking to somebody yet that's been thinking, I probably need to talk to an attorney about this kind of stuff, but they, but they haven't reached out for whatever reason, that triggering event hasn't popped off for them yet. What kind of things should they be doing? What kind of preparation should they be making? What kind of things should they be gathering to be able to prepare themselves ultimately when they do engage in this process to make it a more efficient process? Well, you're basically asking, how does a client get to be a really easy client for me to work with, Uh, one who does their homework in advance? And some of the questions I will ask them are, who are you going to want as an executor or a trustee? And that often raises questions in their own mind. Oh, yeah, I know my I want my husband to be doing that. But what if my husband's not around or can't do it? Now I've really got to think. So I often give clients homework. Start thinking, who are you going to want to make financial decisions if you can't? Who do you want to be handling your estate after you pass away? Who's going to watch over your pets? That's an increasingly big issue. Pets are family members in many households. Sometimes they're the favorite family member, let's be honest. And... You want to make sure that they are taken care of as well. It needs to be set up in advance. Makes a lot of sense. And I agree. And that's because that's because pets are better than people. So um, they don't they don't back talk as much. (laughs) Less sass. I always said when my children were teenagers that it was great to have a dog because no matter how bad my day was, I knew there was someone who would be happy to see me when I got home. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, I'm planning with a client now that they don't have any children, but they have horses. And so their estate planning involves the horses. Right. So so I know exactly what you're talking about. Understood. Well, um, so very interesting. Okay, so protect people. So do you have recommendations or what kind of homework would you give somebody like that? Is it just simply like, who do you trust to play these roles and responsibilities? Uh, Are they asking you for, do most people pick their spouse or do they pick their eldest child or they pick their next door neighbor? Like how much uh, guidance do you provide in something like that? 
Well, I'm, I'm often asked by people who don't have an obvious choice, what should I do? And then they'll say, well, what would you do? Which really puts me on the spot because, again, every family is different. And trusting one of my children to do something might be a great idea, but trusting one of my client's children might not be such a great idea. So they really need to think things out understand that in the vast majority of situations, as long as the client is still alive and legally competent, they can make changes. So as the years go by, yeah, maybe you want to name your brother as the successor executor. That's fine. Well, maybe 15 years down the road, your brother's not in such great health and he's moved to the Philippines, and it's not such a great choice. You give me a call, we get back together, we make changes, that's easy. Right, yeah, I kind of always tell people, you know, um, think down a generation, right? Because, you know, there's a higher probability those people are statistically going to be alive, you know, so find the, the niece or the nephew or the grandchild or whoever is the most competent in it, you know, in a few, you know, that's, because I've seen a lot of people that are like, oh, my older sister, she's the responsible one. I'm like, you thought about that a little bit? Like, where, like where that's going to go, how that's going to play out. Right. So you understand what I'm saying. So from a legislative standpoint, obviously, we hear things in the news all the time talking about, you know, infrastructure bill for this and raising taxes for that. And many times that has a trickle down effect to ultimately um, assets that transfer in a state or in a probate, potentially causing estate tax issues and other things. Are there any obstacles or opportunities that you're seeing legislatively right now and the things that are being talked about? We had the SECURE Act make some changes just a few years ago. Um, I think some of those affected uh, potentially stretch legacy type planning opportunities. So maybe that's, you know, something that uh, comes up when you're having those conversations. Oh, absolutely. And I would love to be able to say in three years, here's what the law is going to be. So this is what we should be planning. But if I could predict the future, I'd be in Vegas right now. So what I all I say is keep your eyes open. There's things do change. And that's one of the primary reasons to go back and review your plan is you might have set everything up beautifully in 2022. But in 2026, maybe something has been creative. Maybe there's new legislation out there that didn't exist in 2022. Great example of that, when I started my practice, it was before the advent of 529 plans. Now, many people, certainly fans of your podcast are familiar with 529s. Many people don't realize there's actually a big opportunity for a loophole for graduate, for generation skipping transfers built into 529s. That wasn't an option before the legislation was passed. So we couldn't do that. Another example uh, is many people, unfortunately, have been indoctrinated with the idea of, oh, probate is awful. Probate's really expensive. Probate takes forever. And they'll tax you at 45% of anything over half a million dollars. Well, the laws have changed a lot, and I can't speak for every state, certainly. Every state is different. But in my own home state of Connecticut, what used to be 
an estate being taxed on everything over $600,000, now a couple can have assets into eight figures without paying federal estate tax. So there's all sorts of changes that happen. And there are certain benefits, and I know I'm swimming upstream a little on this, there are certain benefits to the probate process, depending on the estate. It's not the best thing for everybody at every time, but then again, it's not necessarily an evil. Depends on your situation. Well, let's lean into that. Let's talk about it, right? So let's go back a little bit because I don't want to leave people hanging. I'm making notes because you bring up some good points. So you talked about 529 and there's a good estate planning. So let's not tease them on that. What's the opportunity with a 529 from an estate planning perspective? I think I know what you're going to say, but I want you to say it. Well, I hope you know. You're the professional, financially speaking. I can put money away into a 529 today and it gets right out of my estate. If I get hit by a bus next week, that money is not in my estate because I set it up properly in a 529. That money can sit there for the benefit of my children. If my children don't use it, it can roll down to my grandchildren. And in all those years, it's gaining income. It's getting bigger and bigger. That's right. So that amount of money is going tax-free. It wasn't taxed in my estate. That's right. It's not going to be subject to generation skipping transfer taxes, which is a very high tax rate, one of the big ones you want to avoid. And it can be going for the benefit of grandchildren or potentially great grandchildren. So there is an opportunity there. Again, depends on the family situation. And from an estate tax planning perspective, you can also do it as a one time lump sum as a five year Ford gift. So it allows you to put a substantial amount of money out on a per beneficiary basis per, I guess you would call it grantor, right? The person, right. the grandparents making the grant to the 529 plan for the benefit of the, the child, the grandchild, whatever it is. So yeah, it is an estate. That, I tell them that's, that's one of the best tools to use. Um, ironically, I don't do a lot of 529 planning. It's just not my client base. It's typically who hires me, but I understand how to use it. And I've been trained on it and all the other stuff. And that's a, a very good opportunity. And I, I agree with you, you know, very much for somebody that's got a family. So let's double back into the probate thing. Why do people think probate is bad? Good, bad, or indifferent? What's the optics out there? What's the narrative that's running around that makes everybody thinks that probate is a terrible thing? Is it, is, it, is it really a terrible thing or is it just hype for somebody else to accomplish a goal? More often than not, it is hype by certain firms, which I will not name, who say, you must have a living trust. Come to our dinner seminar and we will show you why you need a living trust to avoid probate. And these people think, oh, well, I've been told for decades how awful probate is. I go to that. They hire the attorneys. The attorneys charge them enormous amounts of money to set up something from their software that the paralegal prepares. Mm -hmm wildly overcharges them. The client has no idea what's in this beautiful three ring binder with the gold leaf on it. And it doesn't accomplish what these people want, but it does accomplish what the lawyer wanted, which was to make a lot of money quickly. Sell a trust package. Yes. They're selling a a pig in a poke. It's a package. 
but it's not responsive to what the client actually needs. And the client doesn't realize that because whereas the lawyer has been doing this potentially for years with thousands of people, this may be the first time the client is experiencing legal estate planning. They don't know what they don't know. That's right. That's right. You get one shot to do it. It's not like going to the gym. You can go to the gym today and be terrible at it, but you get to wake up, dress up and try again tomorrow. And maybe you're better with a lot of these other things. You get one crack at it to kind of do it right. And so you don't get to practice on other people's lives per se. So understood. So let me ask you a question of the attorneys that are out there. And look, there's financial people that do it too. So I'm not going to let you throw all the attorneys under the bus on that one as much as we might like to. There's financial people that promote, you know, the use of a trust for probate avoidance and things as well. How many of those do you see that actually go the next step and help the clients actually fund the trust? (laughs) Not nearly enough. I... (laughs) I could have built a perfectly decent practice simply with clients who were hoodwinked, for want of a better term, into living trusts that they did not need and don't understand. And clients who had a large law firm set up everything nice and complex, everything was drafted properly. And then when the papers are signed, the attorney shakes their hand, pockets the check and says goodbye and never follows up to make sure that the assets are actually transferred. And I've had many estates where the beneficiary comes and says, well, we know dad had this trust and they're holding the trust in their hand. And I say, great, I'm going to need to see a list of the assets that were transferred, copies of the deeds. And they say, oh, Didn't that happen automatically? No. As far as I know, and again, I'm not admitted in every state and I have to give the legal disclaimer. There's no state where real estate transfers automatically into a trust or in fact, anything transfers automatically. Different assets, either you change a beneficiary designation on an insurance policy or a financial account, have to sign a new deed and have it recorded for real estate. There's all sorts of different ways, but nothing's automatic. And there's too many attorneys who don't do that extra step because for whatever reason. Well, it feels more like an admin function. They're being paid for the intellectual solution that they're bringing to the table on the front end, not for the menial work. So for everybody that's listening that doesn't understand what we're meaning, let's add a little clarification. When you, what we're talking about here is if you buy a trust that the assets that were going to ultimately be in the trust, whether it be real estate, investment accounts, or anything that can hold title, that you need to retitle those assets in the name of the trust for the trust to actually have the efficacy of the reason that we created it in the first place. Otherwise, it doesn't work that way. So those assets have to be retitled. If you don't do that, you bought a big useless pile of expensive paperwork is what you've done, right? Yes, but I'm going to go back just a moment and correct you on something you just said, which is extremely common. You said, when you buy a trust in my practice, and I can't speak for everybody, I don't sell a trust. I craft an estate plan. Now, an estate plan is whatever is necessary to make sure that that client can sleep better at night. 
That can include bringing in a financial advisor, a real estate agent, an appraiser, a forensic accountant, whoever it has to be necessary to be brought in to make sure that everything dovetails. I have no problem following up with making sure that the deeds get transferred into the trust because I don't consider that menial administrative labor. That's still part of crafting the estate plan. It's all part of the holistic project. Until everything is done, nothing is done. I mean, ask somebody if they're the old, and I'm old enough to remember, Evil Knievel, ask him how successful he is if he only jumps 90% of the way over the canyon. Well, he's gotten most of the way. That's all right. You know, no, if you're not finished, you're not done. <laughs> yeah, 90% is an A in everything except landing a motorcycle across a canyon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a pass fail. There's no other grades that are in between. <laughs> so totally understand there. So great point. And I apologize for the use of the, of the but but you're right. You know, it, it is crafting an estate plan. And that goes into not everybody needs a trust as part of their estate plan, right? Very true. Uh, I tell people all the time, a trust is not like a flat screen TV. Just because your neighbor has one doesn't mean you have to have one that's bigger. It all depends. Every family situation is different. The same family situation is different 10 years ago than it is today, and it'll be different 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. So a trust is simply one tool in the toolbox. And as they say, if all you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Well, the world is, you know, I have found that, you know, as many as as complex as some of these scenarios can be, it gets easier to convey the message to clients sometimes when you boil it down to one common denominator. And I find too many industries tend to do that, right? They become singular product focused. And maybe they do some of the other stuff around it, but they know that 90% of the people that walk in the door are curious about, you know, a will and a trust package. So what do they do? They talk about a will and a trust package because that's what the people, oh, by the way, do you want your health care your other information. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that information would be good too, right? So, yeah, because I educate clients all the time on function of law and beneficiary designations, right? So, and they're like, oh, well, I didn't understand that that worked that way, you know? So, it's really common that there's a, there's a misunderstanding there. So, no, I appreciate that. It makes a lot of sense. So, probate gets a bad rap. Let's talk about what's good about going through the probate process, because what what everybody has heard is it's a public process. People are going to know what's going on in my life. It's expensive. It's going to take time. I'm going to have to hire an attorney to do all that stuff. So what's good about the probate process? Why is it something that can be beneficial? Well, it can be beneficial. Again, not always for everybody in every situation. And every state has different probate processes. So some states are more efficient than others. Some towns or some counties are more efficient and better at it than others are. And everybody listening who's had any experience with probate understands that. Uh, There are certain types, and I'm just going to speak about Connecticut for the moment. Sure. For example, if there's a potential lawsuit Let's say the person who passed away, known as the decedent, Mm -hmm. they borrowed money from their next door neighbor. If they don't pay it back, the next door neighbor has six years to come back and 
sue on that breach of contract. Now, that's a long period of time. If the person who borrowed the money passes away and they go to probate, once notice is given, that statute of limitations changes from six years to three months. Mm -hmm. Makes it much easier for the executor, the administrator, whoever is handling the estate, the loved ones left behind, to get things all put together so that there's nothing hanging out there for years. Uh Uh-oh, what if, what if? As an aside, it's one of the reasons why utilities, credit card companies, things like that, always send bills every month. That way they know in case you've passed away, they've sent notice, they've put in their claim. So, and that's what they call notice to creditors, right? That's the first thing that happens in the probate process is a notice to creditors, right? It's very much one of the first things that happen. And back in the old days when there were newspapers, people would notice the last few pages were all those little boring notices that nobody ever read. That's where a lot of them come from. It are the probate courts or surrogates courts filing John Doe passed away, a resident of any town, Montana, and, you know, all creditors are told to contact the following. That way, the law in those districts are satisfied and nobody can come forward years later and say, but we didn't know. How could we know? In the paper. (laughs) Right. It was in it was in the Moose Gazette, wherever it was. (laughs) So with papers becoming functionally obsolescent today to some extent. Right. How do how are notice to creditors filed today? How does that process look more so today? Well, again, it's it's state by state, district by district. Uh, There are still newspapers. Many of those newspapers, their notices are online. So. For example, if you take the Washington Post, they have their notices online. One could, in theory, I don't know who does, but in theory, someone could go in and check those. And it is public as to when someone passes away. In theory, you had mentioned one of the complaints. Oh, it's public. Some things are public. If you have a will and that will gets filed with probate, usually, odds are, that will is a public document. If someone wants to go in and take a look at the will, they can. As an aside, that's why when somebody famous, for example, Prince passes away, a resident of Minnesota, his will was made public. And you also hear of certain people like the former owner of Washington football team back with their old name, passed away, never had a will. The estate collapsed and eventually the family had to sell off the team in order to pay debts because plan was never made. That was made public. Yeah, absolutely. So doubling back on the notice to creditors thing, I would imagine that and you brought up one of them. So somebody passes away end of life. They're now in this probate process. I can imagine what do I do with all these credit cards? Right. What about all these medical bills? right? How are those type? I think that's probably a common question, right? How are those things treated through the probate process? I think that might ease some angst from some people if they understand that a little bit better. That's an excellent question. And I get that very often. People who say, well, you know, I, I have to pay off dad's credit cards. And I say, well, first off, if you don't pay it off right away, 
especially with things like utility bills or whatever. What's going to happen? Are you really worried that his credit rating is going to go down? Trust me, he's never going to need a mortgage again. (laughs) But that doesn't occur to most people. They haven't gone through the process. It isn't something that one thinks about. That's right. Usually, I can't stress this enough. Do not use the assets of the deceased. Happens all the time. Dad passes away. The son, who has a driver's license, comes over, picks up the car, and starts driving it in public. Now, if that son gets pulled over for anything, police officer is going to say, can I see your license and registration? Hands over his license, pulls the registration out of the glove compartment. The names aren't going to match. The driver's name isn't on the title. In some states, that's considered grand theft auto. And obviously not what the son is intending. If somebody gives you permission to use their assets, that permission expires when the person does. So now there can be exceptions with real estate and certain other assets, jointly held assets. Uh, If you have a bank account and you put your daughter's name on it as well, there are some differences. So by all means, talk to the lawyer first before you do anything. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for somebody to put their children's name on their bank accounts? Yes. <laughs> um, it can be a very good thing. If I have this happen often, mom is older, she's a bit infirm, she doesn't really want to be handling all her finances. She puts her daughter's name on the account just so that the daughter can get the bank statements, pay the bills online, because mom is 102 and doesn't understand online banking. The daughter handles all of that for her. That's very convenient. That's a great thing. Now look on the flip side. Dad has an account just to make sure that the account goes straight to his son when he passes away. Dad puts his son's name on the account. Two months later, the son is sued for divorce. His soon-to-be ex-wife says, you have a bank account in your name. I want half of that bank account. In many states, that bank account is on the hook. Uh, That can be pulled in because the son's name is on it. In theory, he could have withdrawn the money. He has a claim to that asset, which means the ex-spouse or the judgment creditor could have a claim on that money. So anybody who wants a more in-depth look at what can go wrong with that sort of thing should read King Lear. Okay. <laughs> and could also be, correct me if I'm wrong, could also be when you, the date you change the titling on the account could be considered a gift, right? It certainly can. And that can raise some very interesting tax issues. Right. And also potential issues if somebody's looking in the... Uh, in the elder law world, potentially for benefit type planning, now you've made some type of a gift in that scenario. Right. That can cause real problems in terms of Medicaid planning, Title 19, um, any or qualif- or possibly looking at it the other way. The parent puts the son's name on. The son ends up needing state assistance. The son is special needs or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. The son may no longer qualify. Because they have access to all this money in dad's account and can cause problems in every direction. 
Yeah, absolutely true. It's crazy. I've early on in my career, I worked on some estate cases. I literally had a brother and a sister. The sister was the one making the financial decisions. The brother wanted control of kind of mom's money or to feel more in control. He literally went in the middle of the night and stole mom out of a nursing home, physically stole her. You know, I'm sure you've got stories like that. Oh, yes. <laughs> and and you tell somebody that and you're like, Cray, and yeah, like they mom ended up passing away in the back of like his mobile home or whatever, you know, when he stole her. And I was like, that's not good. That's a bad situation. Oh, anything that can be done, the soap operas that exist inside people's families, there's an old saying that every family has someone who's nuts. And if you're sitting around the table at Easter or Thanksgiving and you can't figure out who it is, it's you. <laughs> Might be you. <laughs> Might be you. Fair enough. Understood. So uh, that's great. That's great. And I love to, would love to double back on this just a little bit. So what are some of the common assets? And, and if you don't mind, I don't want you to get too deep into something and give away some of the secret sauce. But when you're creating an estate plan or for somebody, right, what are some of the common assets that somebody might have when they go, hey, I can manage this with only a will or, hey, these are the type of assets that potentially need to be handled with a trust type planning, right? Because there are some assets that fit better in one mechanism than in the other. And you don't have to give it all away, but just kind of some high level stuff, if you would, to, you know. Surely the the easiest way that I explain it uh, for people of a certain age, certainly, a will is a snapshot. A trust is a movie. A will says, look at what a person owned as of the moment that before they passed away here's what we want to have happen to it. A trust says, over a period of time, this is what we want to do. So if you've got husband and wife and two happy adult kids where everything seems simple, probably don't need a trust. You're probably good. If you've got children who are ages three and six, you have a 19-year-old with special needs, you have children from first marriage, second marriage, you want to make sure that mom is taken care of wherever she's living, these sorts of things. This is all stuff that happens over time. If you want to make sure income goes to my children, but then when my children pass away, it goes to my grandchildren, Mm -hmm. that's over a long period of time, that's a trust. And there are roughly a billion different types of trusts out there. Yeah. All sorts of different nuances and levels and combinations. Yeah. I tell people trusts are like dogs. There's big dogs, little dogs, loud dogs, quiet dogs. Like there's that many different types, depending on what the use case is or the purpose. Right. And a lot of blends. And sometimes, you know, the mixed breed is just what you want. That's right. It's true. It's true. Um, Great explanation on that, by the way. That's not the way I would have thought that you would have answered that, but but I think it makes a lot of sense. It's a snapshot in time. Here's what we have, and we think the people. But if there's if this is a plan that needs to be executed on over time, and you know our wish is carried out over, I think that's a that's a great explanation. So it's not just as simplistic as. I have a house or I have a car or I have a checking account or something. So it's more, I have these things, but what do I want to those things to accomplish in the future? Who do I want to have them and how do I want those people to manage them? So I think that's a great takeaway. 
Thank you. So from where we are now, we're, you know, we're in 2022 now. We've gone through a crazy past couple of years that have probably, well, let me ask a question. Has COVID changed the way people think about estate planning? Absolutely. No question at all. People are, I mentioned earlier, what gets people to actually pick up the phone? Fear. There's a lot of fearful people, and for good reason, when they see their family members hospitalized or passing away, when they see their friends, when businesses have closed down, all sorts of things that COVID has created in a world we didn't expect a few years back. Sure. It makes people think, and it makes them, again, wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. Say, we got to do something about this because everybody's thinking, well, you know, I'm 65 years old. I've probably got, you know, another 20, 30 years. I've got time to worry. You know, I don't have to worry about this. Now they're seeing, yeah, well, people in their 30s are being hospitalized. Maybe they'll get better, but who's making decisions for them? Do they even have a power of attorney? Do they have healthcare directives? You have to do this stuff in advance. <laughs> right. No, I, I get it. Yeah, I'm in my 40s and I had some fraternity brothers and stuff pass away from it. So, you know, that's certainly something that's kind of unexpected from that demographic. So just but it's a weird time. Very true. Weird time. So anything coming up in the future from um, that maybe some of the legislative stuff that's going on uh, that's going to either create an opportunity and an obstacle in the estate planning in the estate planning world. Anything we see coming on the horizon? Well, I know there's been for a while now discussions about what's known as the look back period, and that is for for people who aren't familiar. If you're planning for Medicaid or Title 19, trying to get assets out of your estate so that you can qualify for state assistance or what used to be nursing home, uh, but it can also be in various states living in your own home and getting care. Currently, when you file an application, you have to show assets that you've given away or put into a trust within five years. That's Mm -hmm. called the look back period. They, it didn't always, it hasn't always been five years. It's been two and a half. It was, you know, it's changed. Five years is as long as it's been. There has been talk for a while now of making it seven and a half years. Now, whether that actually happens or not is anybody's guess. Again, I'm still not in Vegas, unfortunately. So there's that. And there's also... There's always discussion, especially in election years, of the federal estate tax, whether for many years it had been any estate over 600000 then it was a million, it went up, the tax disappeared for a year, it came back, now it's quite high, and you know, whether that changes may certainly make some differences in the planning for various people. And again, it depends on everybody's situation, their asset mix, and what they're trying to accomplish. What are their goals? Because at the federal level for today, a married couple, it's north of $20 million that's excluded from estate tax. That's a relatively high bar, even on an inflation-adjusted basis, right? That's a 20 $20 million is a pretty high bar. 
I only wish that more of my clients were worried about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the other perspective of it then that you brought up just a little bit. What percentage of your clients do you see that have bona fide long-term care concerns and are willing to go through the steps to do the potential Medicaid type asset shelter planning five years in advance of actually needing it, right? Will people actually pull the trigger and do that? Unfortunately, not often enough. What is much more likely in my experience is the person who calls me up and says, hey, my dad isn't doing as well as he used to. We're thinking he's going to need some help. Um, We want to protect his assets. He owns this, that, the other. What can we do? Well, when do you think he's going to be needing help? Well, we're looking at places now. He's probably going to move in in another couple of months. (laughs) too late for all but some very basic kind of planning setups. Though You're never going to get to five years. There yeah. is long-term care insurance for those who qualify, mm-hmm. but many people, as you said, they don't pull the trigger. They don't they say, here's something we ought to be thinking about, and then it gets too late. Just like with financial advising, you could give the advice, people know they should, And the earlier they start, the more options they have and the better their final outcome is likely to be. But many people just don't get started. And I see that distressingly often. Yeah. People wait till they run the train off the tracks and then they're like, we should plan. I'm like, no, that's not a plan. That's called a crisis. It's not the same deal. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. Well, you know, appreciate that. You know, we're kind of running up against our time a little bit today. This has been great. I think you've given some real tangible, uh, you know, nuggets that people can wrap their mind around a little bit to understand the estate planning world. So any final thoughts, anything you want to close with, um, you know, any any message that you want to get out there uh, specifically about, about you, your practice, estate planning, how do people find you? Any of that stuff. What do you got? Uh Easiest way to find me, and I'm easy to find, is www.estatelawonline.com. Law offices of E.G. Sussman on Facebook and all those good places. By all means, feel free to ask me questions, follow along with the blog. I have all sorts of interesting legal nuggets, sometimes a cartoon or two to spice it up. Uh, There you go. But if I could give one piece of advice to people, I would say, don't wait. Don't wake up and think, ah, we should have done that. Be the person who can say, yeah, we took care of that. That's one less thing to worry about, as you know, they said in Hamilton. Uh, let's get this taken care of. That's right. And you know what? Go have the first meeting. If it's on your mind, go have the first meeting. That doesn't commit you to execute the full the plan and full of the point, but go see what the first meeting feels like. Maybe it's easier than you thought. Maybe you're a little bit closer. And, you know, so just, you know, have the first meeting, take the first consultation and see where it goes. Right. Absolutely. Start the process. So Everett, I appreciate your time today so much. Thanks for sharing your insights with, you know, the way that you view the legal world of estate and probate. Um, I think it's a scary topic for a lot of people. And I think it reminds us of our own, you know, mortality or morbidity, right? And and we, we all want to think that we're durable and we're going to last forever, but that's just not the case. So Sad, but true. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
Absolutely not a problem. So everybody today, thanks again for tuning in. This was Matt Chancy on the Tax Alpha podcast. Today we are here with a state attorney, uh, Everett Sussman. Thanks for listening in and listen to us next week. We'll be back. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.